It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 825 for the 31st of March, 2023. This week, if you need to be able to capture screenshots, but the Windows snipping tool is insufficient and commercial applications are too expensive, there's ShareX. In short circuits, anyone who has tried to schedule a Google Calendar event on the last day of every month has found out that it's not possible. There is a workaround, though. Does your Windows computer share too much information with Microsoft? You can tell it to shut up, but proceed with caution. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, Windows XP users complained that their computers were much slower after they installed Service Pack 1. Although I've been using TechSmith's Snagit since about 1990, it is important to recognize that not everyone needs the most comprehensive screen capture utility enough to pay more than $60 for it. And yet the Windows snipping tool is just too limited. The answer could be ShareX, a highly customizable screen capture utility that's free with requested donations. The first version of ShareX was released in 2008, so it hasn't been in development for quite as long as Snagit, but it's been in development for long enough that it has a lot of features. For testing, I installed ShareX on a Surface 6 Pro tablet. This is a computer with an extremely high-resolution screen, and that means that some apps will have trouble displaying readable menus. ShareX is one of those apps. Now, that doesn't make it unusable, but it did mean that I spent a lot of time squinting at setup screens. The customization options in this program may surprise you. ShareX has a good interface, but the default hotkeys may cause some problems. By default, the print screen key captures the entire screen, or if you have multiple monitors, everything on all of those screens. There is an option for capturing the entire contents of just one screen. Alt print screen captures the active window, shift print screen starts or stops a screen recording, and control shift print screen starts or stops recording a GIF screen capture. Oh, and here's a little side note. The developer of the GIF format, Steve Wilhite, says it is pronounced GIF. More people pronounce it the other way, despite what the developer says. So prescriptive dictionaries probably specify GIF, but descriptive dictionaries would probably list both GIF and GIF. Those who feel really strongly about it will argue endlessly. For the rest of us, eh. But to get back to what I'm supposed to be talking about, some of the ShareX hotkeys do conflict with other applications, and some are for features I use so infrequently that a hotkey certainly isn't essential. I usually want to capture either a region, the active application, or the entire screen, and that's what I defined hotkeys for. Control-Shift-R for a region, Control-Shift-W for the active window, and Control-Shift-S for the entire screen. 
One possible issue for users of computers that have extremely high-resolution screens with small dimensions, like the Surface Pro 6, will be the editor's toolbar. The Microsoft Surface 6 Pro has a 2736 by 1824 pixel screen. It measures just 12 inches diagonally. When comparing the ShareX interface to Snagit, a commercial application, the difference is clear, even with the screen set to 200% scaling. But that's not a deal killer. ShareX's versatility is astonishing. It gives users a great deal of power. But with great power comes the requirement to dig into the many settings and arrange them the way you like them. Captured images may be stored locally, uploaded to various sharing services, or placed on Google Drive or Microsoft's OneDrive. After deciding where the images should be stored, the user needs to link ShareX to any of those remote destinations. That's easy, but those who use ShareX on the same computer where the images will be used can just simply create a local directory. Because I use ShareX to capture images on a tablet computer, but will actually use them on my primary computer, I have ShareX delete the local files and then store them on Google Drive. That leads to definitions for what happens to images after they've been captured. I have ShareX place the image on the clipboard, save it to a file, upload it to Google Drive, and then delete the local file. Yeah, there is some redundancy in there. The after-capture actions apply to all images, but users may want some images to be treated differently. In that case, individual overrides can be created for specific tasks. And that's not all. ShareX offers a variety of specialized tools from a color picker and ruler to an image editor and annotator and then on to optical character recognition. There's also the ability to create a QR code for an uploaded image, and a video converter. Tech Gumbo has a quick beginner's guide to ShareX on YouTube, and ShareX documentation is on Gitbooks. I have links to both of those locations on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You can download ShareX from the developer's website. There's also a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. There are other screen capture apps that are easier to use because they're less configurable, and TechSmith's Snagit has features that are missing from ShareX. But ShareX may be exactly what you need. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, do you have any tasks that you'd need to do on the last day of every month? If so, maybe you'd like to place that task on your Google Calendar. Good luck with that, because that's not something Google offers. Just because Google overlooked it doesn't mean that you can't do it, though. You just have to be a little creative. 
Following last year's back surgery and its complications, I have several new medications I need to take. And unlike before the surgery, there are morning and afternoon sets. During my month in assisted living, I found that taking the medications at irregular times caused problems, but I didn't have any control over it. So now I package the medications and set reminders to take them. It's easy to add that information to the calendar because the events happen every day at the same time. But I prepare the medications one month in advance, always on the last day of the month. So I wanted to add a reminder to the calendar to prepare next month's medications on the last day of each month at 8 a.m. It's not hard to remember that I need to do that on the last day of the month, but I don't want to forget about it until 9 p.m. Well, this should be easy, I thought. I'll just add the first date on the 28th of February. But then what surprised me was that there was no option for repeating on the final day of every month. That's a feature I'm fairly certain was available on my Palm Pilot in the mid-1990s. The options I was offered were daily, every week on Tuesday, monthly on the fourth Tuesday, monthly on the last Tuesday, every weekday, or custom. Okay, I'll just take a look at the custom section. But it wasn't there. The custom section offered the ability to repeat every so many days, weeks, months, or years, or to repeat on specific days of the week. Now, come on, Google Calendar's been around for a long time. How could the developers miss something so obvious? The way to trick Google Calendar into repeating something on the last day of every month involves creating an ICS file and importing it into the calendar. ICS files are used to share information between various calendar systems, and the file format is specified in RFC 5545, a standard for calendar data exchange. You'll see an example of what an ICS file looks like on the TechMiter Worldwide website. The first three lines, which are Begin v Calendar version 2.0 and Begin v Event, along with the last two lines, which are end v event and end v calendar, simply create sections for data and specify the ICS version. Here are the important lines. R rule is the repetition rule. I set the frequency to monthly, the interval to one, meaning every month. By set position, minus one means the last day of the month, and by day, listing Sunday through Saturday allows the event to occur on any day. There are two lines that are just plain English text intended to be human readable, summary, and description. Then there's DT Start. It shows when the event begins and specifies the time zone. My time zone is New York City, and the event is scheduled to begin at 2023-02-28-T-08-00-00. That means 2023, month 02, February, date 28. The numbers following T indicate the time, 08 meaning 8 a.m., 00 minutes, 00 seconds. So the event starts at 8 a.m. exactly. If you don't specify a time, the event will be shown as an all-day event. And that's what I got for my first attempt. And there's DTN. It's used to set duration. So the date is the same as the start, but the end time is 08 hours, 30 minutes, 00 seconds. The DT end line is not necessary. If you omit it, the event will use whatever time you've specified as the default duration. 
There are also two TZID indicators, not strictly required, but wise to include it. This indicates specifically the time zone, and there are a lot of them. If you'd like to see how many time zones are available, check out the Oracle website. I have a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The ICS file needs to be a plain text document, so prepare it with Notepad, Notepad++, Ultra Edit Studio, or some other text editor. After saving the file, open Google Calendar and click the plus sign at the right of Other Calendars. Choose Import from the bottom of that list, then click Import and Export. Use the Import dialog to locate the file, specify the calendar you want the event to appear in, and click Import. If Google Calendar can understand the file you've made, the event will be imported and you'll see a success message. Then take a look at the calendar. If something has gone wrong and you need to change the input, just right-click any one of the events and choose Delete, then select All Events and click OK. My second effort didn't include the DT end field, so all of the events were set to one hour duration instead of the 30 minutes I wanted. So I deleted them and tried it again. Got it on the third try. When the process is complete and your events have been added, you'll see that Google Calendar reports unsupported recurrence if you try to edit the event. O&O Software builds its shut-up utility application as, and I quote here, an anti-spy tool for Windows 10 and 11. That raises a question about whether we really need an anti-spy tool for Windows 10 and 11. So let's take a look at what it does. The free utility does not need to be installed, and it claims to limit Microsoft's spying on users. It's true that Microsoft does collect information from users about how they use their computers. Much of the information is used by developers who are tasked with making the operating system better. But some of the information is also used to display personalized information to users. And some of the information is used to synchronize settings if you have more than one Windows computer and you've specified that you want them to be synchronized. Telemetry is used to send crash reports to Microsoft so that developers can work out what caused the crash and find a way to correct the underlying problem. One comment I saw recently was either from someone who has a very sharp wit and a sense of irony, or someone who is a blithering idiot. The comment? I don't want anybody to know how many times I pressed the Windows key versus clicking the Start button. I suspect that comment was ironic. I hope it was ironic. So yes, Microsoft does collect data, but the company receives anonymized data that's primarily about how humans interact with the computer and what happens when something goes wrong. It's not particularly interesting data, at least to people who are not Microsoft developers. And although it sends information about some of your documents, it doesn't include the contents of the documents. Those who want to see what Microsoft receives can download the Diagnostic Data Viewer from the Microsoft Store. You'll see that it's really not very interesting. Of course, it is easier to simply ignore the facts and whine about spies. That said, sometimes the information sent to Microsoft may seem a bit much. Windows includes settings to enable or disable data transmissions, but they're not in a single location, 
and many of them would require a registry edit. O&O Shutup organizes the settings. By default, Microsoft enables the vast majority of telemetry sessions. O&O Shutup gives users a way to turn them off. But proceed with caution. It's important to understand that turning off some of the options may cause problems. It would be unwise to start the program, open the Actions menu, and select Apply All Settings. For example, you could turn off access to contacts, calendar, and notifications. But an application that you've installed that needs access to contents, calendar, and notifications won't work properly anymore. So O&O software at least color codes each setting. Green means that O&O recommends you set those settings. They protect a higher level of privacy without limiting essential functions. Then there are some that are marked yellow. Those are settings somewhat recommended. They protect privacy, but under some conditions, they will deactivate Windows functions that you might need. And there are several marked red. These are ones not recommended because under many conditions, they will limit the functionality and security of important Windows components. For example, you could deactivate Microsoft Defender. And if you have no other security program installed, you're in trouble. When you start Shut Up, you'll see a screen with two tabs that contain settings in categories. The tabs are for settings that apply to the current user and those that apply to the local machine, regardless of user. There's a toggle switch for each setting, red when the information is being shared, green if the option is disabled. The second column is a brief description of the information type. The third column is where you'll see recommendations. It's generally safe to turn off those with green dots in the recommendation column. Generally safe doesn't mean desirable or wise, though. I turn off suggestions in the timeline and in start, but not the transmission of typing information, suggested contents in settings, or clipboard history. Each of those could be disabled, but each provides value to me. Clipboard history, for example, persists even through a reboot. Instead of holding a single image or a bit of text, the Windows 11 clipboard can hold multiple items. The usual Control-V pastes the last item placed on the clipboard, and pressing the Windows key, then V, displays the contents of the clipboard so you can select an item to paste. In some cases, you can also synchronize the contents of the clipboard to other computers. I rarely use Microsoft Edge, but I've turned off Edge's ability to collect credit card information and to offer to autocomplete a form when I'm on a commercial site. That's what I have a password manager for. If you plan to use ShutUp, plan to take some time investigating it. It's important to examine each setting individually. And that's something that will take you some time. When ShutUp starts, it will check for any settings that have changed since it last ran. In some cases, Windows updates will restore functions you've turned off. If ShutUp detects any changes, it'll notify you and offer options to accept all of the changes or revert to your previous choices. ShutUp is also good about reminding users to create a system restore point whenever settings are changed. Although it is possible to skip that step, it's wise to create the restore point. If you'd like to give it a try, download ShutUp on the O&O software website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. 
Windows XP didn't share much information with Microsoft, but in this week's 20 Years Ago section of the TechBiter Worldwide website, we look back at a big loss of performance following the installation of XP Service Pack 1. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>